millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising is exactly a week from now, June 28th, when in 1969 the patrons of the Stonewall Inn rebelled against a police raid and lit the spark for the gay liberation movement. The patrons of the inn tended to be among the poorest and most marginalized in society and in the gay community, queens and queers, feminine gay men and butch lesbians, transgender people. They were also the people who tended not to show up in the newspapers, because society would have preferred they didn't exist at all. But when queer existence was acknowledged, it was criminalized, and never so explicitly as in the true crime stories that exploded in popularity after World War I. Newspapers reported on the murder of men by other men in lurid detail, and breathlessly repeated the suspect's defenses that he was driven to violence by the victim's indecent advances, that the only normal response to homosexual desire was murder. Indecent Advances is the title of James Polchin's new book about how queer men were represented in true crime stories from the end of World War I to the Stonewall era. Newspapers were central to circulating ideas about what was normal and what was deviant. And the stories in the crime pages were weaponized against queer men in the sex panics of the 1930s and the lavender scare of the 1950s. But then, ultimately, this discrimination was turned on its head by early gay rights groups, known then as homophile groups, and transformed into a civil rights movement for a social minority. James Polchin is a clinical professor at New York University, and he joins us from Manhattan to talk about the book. Thanks so much for chatting with me, James. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you write in your introduction that, quote, queer history has often focused on narratives of progress in which sexual minorities prosper despite the social injustices done to them. And yours is not that kind of history. So where do you see indecent advances fitting into that narrative? Right. Now, I think definitely this is not a book about... uh, community development or cultural um, expression. But I think that, you know, there's always that background in those um, stories of a queer past. Those histories are very much about how queer citizens 
found cultural life, found um, community, despite all the prejudices, despite all the discriminations and dangers that they had to navigate. And so for me, I really wanted to investigate more of the kinds of dangers, the kinds of real violence that queer citizens faced, both on the streets, but also in the, in the criminal justice system. You know, your book is dark and oftentimes violent, but mm. to me, it didn't really seem entirely hopeless because we begin with, you know, a lot of newspaper clippings of brutal murders, but we do end with the reversal, I guess, of how violence is treated by the community with the Harvey Milk murder mm. or with Stonewall and people reacting to it and responding in an organized way. Right, right. And and that's that was... Definitely the the arc of this story I wanted to tell, um, not simply a story of or many stories of violence and and murders uh, against queer men who were clearly targeted by their killers by their assailants. Right, you know I wanted to show how at the same time that the mainstream media, the legal structures were really discriminatory towards these kinds of crimes. Uh, I also wanted to show how they ultimately became really powerful tools to develop a sense of homosexuals as a social minority that suffered within the society and that deserved certain kinds of recognition as social minorities, right? And so while it's true, this this book is filled with um, a number of of crimes, and I, and I really try to give the details the way the newspapers presented them, because I think it's really important that contemporary readers understand both the nature of the crimes, but also the nature of how the newspapers were reporting it. But there is that sense of evolution. There is that sense of early homophile civil rights groups in the 1950s turning to the crime pages and saying, this is evidence of how we are discriminated against. This is not evidence of our criminality. And so they reread those pages in a really powerful way, in a thoughtful way. And I think it's a really important part of how this um, emerging consciousness that homosexuals constitute a social minority. Well, let's talk about the time frame that you're looking at, because in your book, you focus on the end of the First World War through the Stonewall Uprising or really before it. Right. Why start in the 1920s when both newspapers and queer people were around long before then? <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> um, you know, the 1920s is uh, uh, particularly post-World War One is really a kind of crucial moment. There had certainly been investigations and concerns about homosexuality before World War I, particularly in urban um, settings. But there's something about that moment uh, in the early 1920s when homosexuality becomes a very big concern. I mean, that's putting it lightly, this kind of concern across psychology, criminology, and increasingly in the press, right? Um, there is there's this moment, right? Also in the 1919, 1920, when um, sodomy is officially coded as a crime in the military. It's one sort of indication of of how concern about the problem of homosexuality on the home front begins to take shape. Can you expand on 
how homosexuality was defined and understood over the course of this period, because it does change a lot. And it started somewhere, goes somewhere different, and then ends somewhere even completely different, you know, behavior versus inborn, yeah. and nature versus nurture, et cetera. That's, that's actually a fascinating thread of this, of the research and of, of the work, right? So I initially started to look at the crime stories, right? That's what my interest was, to uncover these crime stories. Most of them have never been read since they were first published. Um, I didn't know about them, and I had a, you know, many years of study into the history of sexuality, and these were not um, documents that I knew of. And so um, what came out of that, though, was this other story um, about the the theories of homosexuality that thread it through criminology and medical professions at the time, right? And so you have um, these debates at the time, uh, older models of of homosexuality as a as a biological defect, right? Something that can be read on the body, something that you can point to and identify as a homosexual, right? Um, and also part of that was this notion that it's a small minority of people who have this kind of biological defect. Um, but then there's this other theory that comes about, which is about uh, a mental defect, and mostly through a kind of Freudian lens in which childhood development was a big impact. And that was a very dominant kind of approach in the post-World War II period. Uh, but of course, coupled with that is the notion that you can change, right? And so it brought about all kinds of uh, psychological and medical practices to transform and to fix, basically, the problems of childhood for homosexuals. And then, of course, there is the very influential study uh, that Alfred Kinsey did that came out in 1948 about male um, sexuality. And what he found was that uh, homosexuality was pervasive across all kinds of classes and geographies and professions, and that it couldn't be located um, in any one kind of background or upbringing. It certainly couldn't be located in one kind of biological defect. So his his theories were so impactful and changing and, and questioning those debates that were happening um, about the idea of, of the origins of homosexuality. So, I mean, if these accounts were not something you'd encountered in the history of sexuality, how did you discover them? I mean, given that you wouldn't exactly find like queer murder or gay murder printed in the press. Right, right. Newspapers were not indexing gay murders or queer crimes in this period. And so I initially started this research back in the dark days before um, newspapers were digitalized. And so I came across the journals of Carl van Vechten many years ago. Uh, van Vechten was an artist and a writer. He was a big promoter of Harlem Renaissance writers in the 1920s. He was married twice. Uh, his, his second wife, he was married to her up until his death in 19. 64. But he also had a number of homosexual relationships um, and was known um, to have these relationships. So what he did in the later years of his life was compile these scrapbooks of queer life in those decades, I would say from the 1920s till the 1950s, 
uh, drag ball flyers, advertisements for queer novels. He made his own kind of homoerotic collages from newspaper images and his own images. But mixed into all this um, ephemera were crime stories from the newspapers that he would clip. Many of them were coded. They weren't so explicit, but you could tell from uh, where the two men met or the particulars of the murder itself um, that there was a queer subtext to them, and here they were in Van Vechten's scrapbooks. And so that was my first encounter with these kinds of stories, and it sort of set me off um, searching them. Once newspapers began to be digitalized, then it opened up ways of searching with key phrases, uh, sailor found murdered in hotel room, for example. Those kinds of phrases opened up a whole bunch of articles I never would have found just by going through the microfilm. Well, I mean, your book title is itself one of those coded Mm. um, phrases that was used by newspapers and also by a lot of the murderers themselves to reference homosexuality. Um, So how were phrases like indecent advances used and and what were other ways that newspapers, reporters, um, even some of the perpetrators coded homosexuality? Mm. Yeah, the the term indecent advances is is a great one, right? It's just, it's so compelling. It's so... um... It both tells you a lot, but then tells you nothing, right? It sort of is a term that is very provocative in that way. And so, yeah, the, the press would use those this term, indecent advance. They'd also use improper advance. Later on in the 50s and that, it would even use terms such as homosexual advance, right? So it was very clear what was going on. Um, and that was a way to code um, the kinds of um, interactions between the victim and the killer in these crime stories. And, of course, it's a prejudice term, right, because it really puts the blame on the victim. Uh, And so you had defendants using this kind of language in the courtroom to uh, claim uh, justifiable homicide, to claim a certain kind of um, uh, defense, right? Um, I had to um, protect myself from these advances of this homosexual. And of course, we have to remember that in the broader public imagination, homosexuality was associated with criminality. And increasingly, homosexuals were seen as violent threats. So those kinds of terms, indecent advance or improper advance, resonated um, and were, were really useful for defendants in the courtroom because they did play on the prejudices of the juries and the court to often get them a lesser charge or acquit it completely. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most galling examples of that to me was this murder you talk about, um, the Kenneth Noy murders. He was known as the Singing Slayer, and he killed two men. The prosecution argued that it was totally, he was totally, here, actually, I'm going to let you explain what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, that's one of my favorite cases, and it's very complicated, right? So he, this was in 1933, and he met his first victim in Times Square. He went home with him to New Jersey, to where the victim lived, and ended up violently beating and killing him. He then takes the victim's clothes and the victim's car. He drives to New Orleans where he meets up with another man in a hotel room, uh, an older man who's married with kids on a business trip, and he ends up also beating and strangling uh, that man and and, and killing him. Eventually, he is arrested, and he's extradited back to New Orleans 
to stand trial for the second murder. But in that trial, there was the question of sanity. Kenneth Newey was, yeah, the papers called him the killer crooner. And uh, he had this real, you want to say, like a Hollywood gangster appeal to him. He was handsome. He sang. He tap danced. He was uh, very engaging, uh, definitely for, for press purposes, right? He also did these uh, incredibly odd gestures where he was wearing the suit of one of his victims and the shoes of his other victims when he went to court. And so, you know, he might be, you know, thought of as, as a psychopath in our own terminology today. But in his trial in New Orleans, the prosecution was arguing that Nui was definitely sane, and a big part of the evidence for his sanity was that he reacted violently towards the indecent advance of his first victim. And that's something that he had claimed, like, I, I killed that first victim because he came on to me. In the courtroom, that was a big part of the prosecution's argument, that that confirms his, that he's a normal, sane man. Uh, and clearly, the prosecution was playing to the, the prejudices of the jury, as well as the press at the time. And so, you know, that that kind of argument was was really um, circulated in the New Orleans press. Right. Yeah, I was struck by how often, and and how complicit I think that newspapers were in demonizing the victims of these crimes. In a lot of ways, at the end of the story, at the end of the trial, the victim looked worse and looked more criminal than the alleged criminal himself. Mm. So, I mean, how how did the press sort of play along with that or, in fact, originate that? That's a great way of framing how these stories played out from initial crime report through to the trial reports, right? You know, I think the, the press was definitely eager for these stories at the time, right? They were competing often with True Crime Magazine, True Detective Magazine. These are also inventions of the 1920s. And so, you know, if you've ever looked at one of those magazines, they, they're just rich with dramatic language and mystery, right? And so I think these crime pages, particularly tabloids, began to really take on that interest in the entertainment of crime stories um, and the shock value and the sensational value. That's a big part of how people, not only in cities, but, you know, with the AP wire service that was expanding in this period, uh, these news stories that would happen in New York or Los Angeles or D.C. would um, circulate across the country to regional newspapers, to small town newspapers. And so the press was very vital, I think, in amplifying and circulating a notion of queer criminality across the country at the time. When, you know, you didn't see homosexuality in film, you didn't really see it in novels unless you were living in cities because your your local library wouldn't have such books. So how do we get from that to the resistance of Stonewall and later? How exactly does all this violence get turned on its head or, you know, just seen differently and reacted to instead of just sitting there? It, it just seems like so much to combat. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what I look at at the end of this book is is the early homophile civil rights groups in the 50s who really start to take on this notion. Um, and it was a radical notion at the time, right? Because 
Again, sodomy was still illegal in every state. Um, queer men were still seen as criminals. Um, this idea that homosexuals constitute a social minority um, was a completely radical idea and debated among early civil rights homophile groups, right, about this kind of position, this kind of argument. But I do think that um, the crime stories and how queer citizens were victimized uh, on the streets, in the courtrooms, I think that was definitely a key element to motivate this notion of a, of a social minority that needed rights, that needed a sense of a, a place in, in the larger society and not simply targeted, not simply criminalized in, in the ways that they had been, right? And it also, of course, comes right at the time that um, we had the Cold War scares of communism, we had the Lavender Scare, right? You have all these forces that are really amping up and targeting uh, homosexuals as threats, as criminal elements across the spectrum of society. So I think, you know, there was that tipping point um, where we start turning around and thinking about the ways in which homosexuality has been talked about um, in the press. So that reading of those crime stories in a completely different way was vital. They say that the arc of history bends towards progress. But the uptick in crimes against queer and trans and other marginalized people in the past few years testifies to the importance of the stories that James Polchin tells in Indecent Advances. And to the importance of taking care in the way that we tell stories about queer America, because the words and frameworks we use have a real impact on the public imagination. Just look at the way that bathrooms have been policed from the 1960s to today, or the way that someone's appearance is still used to justify lethal force. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.